Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 Community Radio. My name is Andy and I will be with you for the next hour until one o'clock. And today on the Paradigm Shift, we are going to be talking for the second week in a row about the shock doctrine, disaster capitalism, and how it may apply to our current world in coronavirus-inspired flux. Um, We are in a crisis and historically... Crises have been used sometimes to bring out the best in humanity, sometimes to influence us in a direction that maybe wasn't where we wanted to have gone. And one author who has studied this over the years is Naomi Klein. She wrote a book a few years ago called The Shock Doctrine about how real or perceived crises were used uh, by powerful people to push through reforms they maybe otherwise wouldn't have been able to. I'll play a very short clip from Naomi Klein in a minute, but we also today will be hearing from Margaret Pastorius about how uh, this influences creeping militarism in our society, the role of crisis, with Michael Clifford, Secretary of the Queensland Council of Unions, about how it might influence uh, workplace conditions, and with Dali Kafar about how it may influence our privacy and data security. So we have a packed show. Of course, last week we spoke about how it affected our environment and government policies towards our environment, perceived crisis, which of course has taken precedence over our other crisis, which is the climate crisis. And which is a much more a long-term problem than either the economic crisis or the health pandemic. So that's what's coming up. I might play a little clip from Naomi Klein. I played a longer grab from her talking about her ideas about disaster capitalism last week. If you're interested in hearing that show, you can listen to it on the 4ZZZ website using the on-demand function, or also you can listen to it on Paradigm Shift SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash Ian hyphen Kerr, or at pshift4zzz.wordpress.com. There's lots of good stuff on there, including last week's show, but let's have a listen to 
Naomi Klein. I started to actually go back, try to go back to the source of the, the metaphor of, of, of shock therapy. So I started reading about its use in psychiatric contexts and also its use in torture. And that um, led me to a really close reading of the declassified CIA interrogation manuals that were first published in 1963 and in, um, in the 80s, reprinted and have since been declassified. And looking at how the CIA talks about the importance of putting prisoners into a state of shock, because when they're in a state of shock, they're not able to protect their interests. They become childlike and regressed. The, the interrogation manuals are really obsessed with this idea of regression. So I started to think about how that had been applied on a mass scale. The, the exploitation of crisis and shock has very consciously been used by radical free marketeers. And you know, I, I start the book quoting Milton Friedman, where it, something he wrote um, in, the, in 1982, only a crisis, real or perceived, produces real change. And he was admitting that his ideas, his, his vision of a radical privatized world couldn't be imposed in the absence of a crisis. That is Naomi Klein there giving a brief overview of some of the ideas uh, of her book, The Shock Doctrine. Um, and that is what we're talking about. We've got a packed show today, so I might get straight into it chatting first with Margaret Pastorius about um, how this might relate to increasing militarism in our society. Could you start by introducing yourself? Oh, I'm Margaret Pastorius. I'm from Wage Peace, which is a small anti-militarism group that's following what's going on in the arms trade at the moment in Australia. Today on The Paradigm Shift, we're talking about the idea of the shock doctrine, the way that real or perceived crises can be used to, I guess, further the agenda of those who, whose interests are looking after themselves and are not necessarily in all of our best interests. And one of the ways that this can happen is an increase in militarism in society. Is this something that we're seeing in our current crisis? Well, we were already seeing an incredible increase in militarism in the lead-up to the crisis. So they've been setting things up for about the last, well, probably the last 10 or 20 years, but it's just been massively increasing over the last two years and especially in the last year. So for them, it's quite a good moment, really, because uh, they had all the structures in place. But what we notice is they've actually managed to creep into a few extra structures where it gives them a, even a, a firmer foothold uh, in the structure that they're building. So what we've noticed is they've um, they've they've got a, a cell, a dedicated cell inside the main COVID task force for defence industries, and then you've probably got another type of working group or cell you know, type structure, also in the state uh, COVID task force. So we know there's definitely one in South Australia, but there's probably one in most of the other states as well, because all the other states have got these little um, uh, mini defence industries departments going on in them. And uh, our guess is they've, they've probably crept in under the idea of uh, building or strengthening the economy or uh, supporting industry and they've snuck in uh, to make sure that they're getting good handouts from those task force. This is one of the things when we talk about 
the crisis, one of the things in the defence industry, as it's broadly called, the manufacturing of weapons and defence infrastructure, um, is that it's avoided the crisis. It's been deemed an essential industry. The government's put special uh, things in place to pay them earlier, even though uh, military like war is not our current crisis. Obviously, it can be put aside while we deal on things that are really important, but that's not the case. It still is the number one priority for so much of our government expenditure. Yeah, it's certainly going ahead. So you see, um, you know, slightly altered arms um, and exercises going on in terms of war. You see um, this situation where one... uh, an admiral of one of the, or commander of a, of a US ship, tried to shut the tri- ship off and, and shift all the the young people on the ship on the ship to um, quarantine and got um, fired for doing that because he had so much COVID on the ship and he had to shut the ship down. Um, so we get to see, we get to see that they, they don't want shutting down of war, but the industry is certain the industry is certainly going ahead. It's, there's no uh, every day there are still announcements. Every week there are announcements. In fact, they're sort of beefing them up as a sort of hurrah, hurrah, um, as an alternative to the sort of flatness of the rest of the economy. And as you mentioned, there's four billion in early payments that have been given to small and medium-sized enterprises, and the big. Corporations. I'm sure that four billion hasn't just gone to small and medium-sized enterprises because really there aren't that many of them. Most of the work is being done by these huge US corporations, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, um, but also you know BAE, Rheinmetall, the ones who've all they're, they're the um, the ones they've set up. So they've got this whole system set up. So they've got these big these big companies, these gigantic US companies as the um, the funnel for the money, right, and the funnel for the system, for, for, for the industry, and, and they're all going full steam ahead. We've also seen extra money gone. Um, there was a purchase of $350 million worth of patrol boats, which seems to have been boosted as part of a stimulus package and certainly was portrayed that way in the media. Um, and we've also seen these task force talking about how to... Um, stimulate Australia's economy by spending more money on defence industry. And that's part of, in the name of recovering the economy, we're getting a more and more militarised economy and then society once these weapons exist. Yeah, one of the concerns is once this all falls away, like, you know, if the fossil fuels industry is going flat, you know, that's not a concern, but it's quite exciting, really. But um, what we're seeing at this moment is like a, a big shift of money, like a lot of businesses going broke or having to shut down. But the uh, the defence industry is solidifying. And it's interesting you mentioned those two boats, which are being built in Western Australia, which is, of course, the home to the kingpin godfather of the whole militarism system, which is... Uh, Kim Beasley, who's governor of the Western Australia state. So he's managed to move himself from uh, defence minister through to um, ambassador of the USA, through to the president of Lockheed Martin, and now he's governor of uh, Western Australia. And so if, if anybody's going to get extra funding, it'd be him. So he, 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 got in, he would have got in early with one of those... Uh, uh, cells or working groups and um, got in and, and of course the Defence Minister is from Western Australia so she's his 
even though she's from on the other on the other faction of government, the, the Liberal faction, um, she will be his uh, person in 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 the government. And she's obviously she's ex Raytheon. She's to be the bo- on the board of Raytheon, and she said she's you know there to to barrack for the defence. Um, to the weapons industries, that's her. That's her business. Being there as defence minister, so it's it's no. There's no surprise that that extra three hundred and sixty million for the two uh, Austal patrol boats for the navy went to Western Australia. Mm. Another revolving door name that's popped up is Christopher Pine, another former defence industries minister who is now at the University of South Australia but in a kind of defence industries role at that university and he's come up in this kind of COVID task force to try to make sure our money is going to more and more to defence. Yeah, totally. So he the, the way it's working is that uh, uh, the, they're setting up these intermediary... Um, uh, we've mentioned working groups, but they also set up intermediary not-for-profits. They set up intermediary small uh, organisations, collaborations, uh, cross, um, cross-company partnerships, a big company with a little company. So they've got all these uh, structures that they're, they're, they're putting in place. And, and Christopher Pine is one of the masters of the structures. You know, he's the one who uh, organised um, for UAE to, to be uh, importing weapons directly from australia he you know he went to the middle east he set up those export systems he set up whole um he set up a whole department of adf personnel inside uh the embassies to be the export like to be in charge of um setting up defense industry exports so you've got this extraordinary um cross fertilizing or um sort of solidifying of of roles and structures so that in a time like this none of that falters because the government's still pouring money into it and feeding that it's already got um the money pouring in and in fact it pushes it in faster through these prepayments and it then talks it up um and then makes sure that they've got um important people like beasley and pine in the key decision making positions around the country
Oh, yes, that is Common Enemy there. Some quality anarcho punk out of Byron Bay with Fear Campaign. You are on the paradigm shift on 4 Z. We're talking about the shock doctrine, the way crisis can be used to uh, change our society in a way that maybe we wouldn't normally want it to be or allow it to be. I've been speaking with Margaret Pastorius about how this applies to creeping militarism in our society. Let's go back to that chat with Margaret. One of the other ways that we see this kind of talk of crisis used to build a, a creeping militarism in our society is the way that the military is talked about as a key part to any crisis response. And we saw this at the start of the year in the bushfires. And again, in COVID, we've seen the military given these kind of civilian roles of, you know, transporting things around, fighting bushfires, manufacturing protective equipment. And then the military gets to talk about, oh, we're not just about fighting wars, we do all these good things, civilian things, without ever kind of pointing out that if all that money wasn't going to fighting wars, we could build dedicated civilian uh, response teams to our real crisis, which is not other countries invading us. It is the climate crisis. It is, it is health crisis. It is an economic crisis that is going to leave us with these effects. Yeah, and even even in the defence industry journals at the moment, they're discussing this idea of what of, of real security, you know, and real sovereignty, because they realise they've completely lost the plot, and that we have neither real security nor real sovereignty. And they mention in 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 light of COVID, fires, and water, they're the three the three enormous uh, challenges and real security issues that we've faced in the last six months, right? And suddenly they're like, oh, well, maybe we should have had a more sovereign approach. But the the real issue is that you find in the fires, they're just, they're not prepared. They don't have any extra capacity. There is a, a vacuum for a moment at the height of the crisis. And then they have to reach for the ADF to solve that vacuum because they just don't have an alternative. But only after the, the community cry out for it, like the community cried out for it during the fires and they did this time too because there really was no other civilian based plan in place and what we would propose um, uh, from the non-violence community is non-violent defence which of course depends on the empowerment of the community and the readiness of the community to be able to switch and be flexible and create uh, new products in emergencies and also it requires but at the moment of course the ADF is by far the most uh, resourced, organised and trained organisation, logistical organisation, except perhaps the hospitals, um, the health system. But um, it's it's the one that's just sitting there available. And it does have small units, only small units. They've slightly got, they've got bigger in the last six months, believe it or not, but very small units that are um, allocated to civilian support in crises. So you, you see them turning up at a cyclone in Cairns or you see them turning up at the fires to assist with the fires, but only in a fairly small way. But it doesn't matter how small it is, it's a very small allocation of resources. Um, uh, they get a lot of kudos from it. And they get a lot of sort of, um, you know, good feelings and everybody gets to say how great the ADF is that they were able to provide this minute piece of resourcing in this incredibly dangerous moment. Mm. So we're faced with a, a very rare crisis um, here and 
One of the things that could come out of it is a more militarised society. How can we try to change the way this goes so that's not the outcome? Well, we have to get active. You know, what they don't want is an empowered, active, participatory community. And actually, in preparation to this, we were reflecting that actually, you know, social distancing has given people actually an opportunity to participate in a meaningful way in the society just by staying away from each other. Very strange, ironic, but it has made people a lot more active and engaged. And so um, the next step is to move people into whether it's um, mutual aid, if you if that's what you think you're thinking about, you know, because as we come out of this, there will be a lot of people who are displaced and um, confused about their new positioning and they will need support. But we also have to get active on uh, on militarism issues. If we don't want a, a, a militarised society, we need people watching what's going on with militarism and resisting it so that if the militarism comes at uh, climate activists, for example, you know, they are getting the brunt of militarism in this sort of militarised policing. We have to be ready and they have to be ready to resist that when it happens with collective resistance, with, with uh, backfire, uh, and not just sort of uh, settle for it or use legal solutions. Um, we have to use it as part of our uh, activation. Um, but it also means that everybody out there who's been you know, halfway active for the last 30 years. I need to get a little bit more active and um, really uh, learning. What we, what we know is that um, learning about movements, learning about actions, trying new things, that's what grows a movement quickest. Getting activist education, finding stuff out. Thanks, Margaret.
more Well the game is fixed, it's plain to see Play no more You can't rule me You can't rule me You can't take my money And try to rule me too You can't rule me You can't rule me You can't take my soul And try to rule me too That is Lucinda Williams there from her new album. Just came out the other week. Now I can't think of what it was called. I reviewed it. <laughs> anyway, I love Lucinda Williams. That is song is You Can't Rule Me. Um, and we are on the paradigm shift on 4 Z. It's 12.26. We've been talking about the shock doctrine, um, how crisis, real or perceived, can be used to push through reforms that maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to or how it can take away rights that we've spent years uh, fighting for and developing. And I'm next going to speak with Michael Clifford from the Queensland Council of Unions about how some of those workplace rights that have been hard fought and won over years of collective struggle, how some of them could be challenged in the face of a crisis. So let's have a listen to Michael. Could you start by introducing yourself? Uh, Yeah, I'm Michael Clifford, um, General Secretary of the Queensland Council of Unions. And Michael, today on the Paradigm Shift, we are talking about the idea of disaster capitalism, the way that real or perceived crises can be used to push through reforms that wouldn't normally be able to and maybe aren't beneficial for us as a whole. Is this something that the union is concerned about given our current economic crisis? Uh, Yeah, it is, and we're already seeing it. So uh, we're seeing um, employers pushing and employer groups pushing for industrial changes that are completely unnecessary, uh, and they're using the circumstances to uh, try and deregulate the industrial relations system even further. And an example of that is... Uh, you know, recent changes which have reduced the period of consultation with workers to uh, vary enterprise agreements, so to change conditions of employment. So they've reduced that consultation period from seven days down to just 24 hours, which is an impossible period to conduct genuine consultation and allow workers to get advice about uh, changes in conditions that are going to affect their lives. So that's one example. Um, you know, we've seen employers pushing for wholesale changes where they say, you know, that uh, we should remove enterprise agreements altogether uh, and remove, you know, the sorts of restrictions on employers just doing what they want through this period so that they can, in their mind, respond to the crisis quickly. But, of course, that means that employees wear all of the risk um, and employers get to do whatever they like. 
So we're already seeing a push for those sorts of changes and, of course, we're resisting them. Mm. There has been this narrative around sort of the health measures of we're all in this together, we've got to make personal sacrifices for the sake of, you know, society to flatten the curve. There's a worry, isn't there, that that gets transferred to the economic recovery of saying, oh, we're all in this together and so we've got to make a few sacrifices along the way of some of those hard-fought, you know, gains of workers' rights. But it's always unequal, the sacrifice that's made, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You know, we're um, we're hearing that a lot uh, in the interest of us all being in this together. And you know, I, you know, from the union movement's point of view, we certainly don't oppose a message of all being in this together. It's what unions are built on. We're built on a collective view. Uh, we're built on trying to make sure that everything is as good as possible for the greatest number of people. But as you point out, Andrew, it's where are the sacrifices expected, and are we seeing them? you know, at the top. You know, this feeds into, I suppose, a broader issue, which is until now we've had a very sort of neoliberal approach to capitalism in Australia, um, which has been based on a trickle-down theory. You know, we've seen it um, with the penalty rates uh, debates that we've had in recent years where employers and the Conservative government has argued if we cut penalty rates for uh, workers who are working weekends and nights um, that will give employers more money and employers will be able to employ more people that simply hasn't happened penalty rates have been cut but you haven't seen more people get jobs and in fact in the areas they've been cut we've seen less job creation uh, than in the rest of the economy and the fundamental problem with that is that uh, penalty rates for example put money into the pockets of working people and they will spend that money in the local economy which will generate jobs. Taking money out of their pockets has the reverse effect. And one of the interesting things about this crisis is that I think we're seeing, at least in this period, a change in philosophy because unlike the arguments that the government was running, the Conservative government, the Federal government was running in the penalty rates debate which says give more money to the employers... Uh, and they will employ people. We're now seeing, through the JobKeeper program, money being channelled to working people. Through JobSeeker being doubled, we are seeing more money being channelled to people who were previously unemployed and to people who've become unemployed. So there has been a bit of a philosophy shift there that recognises that to generate economic activity, you need to put money in the pockets of working people and of lower paid people, not more money to people at the top. Mm. We have seen a massive boost in the number of unemployed people. Hopefully that won't remain forever after the current um, sort of shutdown. But this does affect the ability of working people to kind of bargain with employers if there is a, a bigger pool of unemployed people, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And um, where you've got more unemployed people, you know, supply and demand will say that you've got less bargaining power and that in itself will drive down wages. Um, and again, there's a huge fight for the union movement um, ahead of us, not just around ensuring that we have decent wages, but also to ensure that we have decent jobs and secure jobs. And again, it's one of the things that's really been highlighted by the pandemic is the importance of job security. 
We've got 3.3 million people in Australia in insecure work. It's one of the highest rates of insecure employment in the OECD. So we had a problem coming into the pandemic. Um, we've seen the effects of that as you've had lots of casual workers, uh, for example, who haven't had access to leave when they've needed to self-isolate or if, in fact, they've become ill. We've also seen an incredibly large number of casual workers missing out on the JobKeeper payment because they haven't had uh, 12 months service. Um, and so, you know, as you know, you have to have 12 months service to get access to JobKeeper. Well, there's a lot of people who are working in casual employment who simply haven't had that length of service. Or in some cases, we've heard they've had years of service as a casual employee, but because the employer has uh, changed hands, they've missed out as well. So the importance of secure jobs has been highlighted through the pandemic, and it's one of the big fights that we need to have coming out of this is to ensure that we have people in permanent jobs so that they can get the certainty and security that they need to plan their lives and to plan for their families as well. And I hope that one of the things that people recognise through the COVID-19 crisis is the importance of having some security and certainty in your life. Mm. Well, we are certainly in a time of flux and there will be changes coming out of this pandemic and the response to it. How do we make sure that those changes are things that benefit all of us and not just a few of us at the expense of everyone else? I think there's a few things that have been challenged through this crisis. So um, I always start at the point of what people's values and beliefs are. And I think we've seen a few um, people's values and beliefs challenged. We've already talked a little bit about how the trickle-down theory um, has been challenged. But there's some other things too, like uh, a belief in small government, which is the mantra of conservative governments, um, that's been challenged. Um, you don't hear too many people crying out at the moment for small government and for government to get out of their lives. We are seeing the opposite. We're seeing that government in times like this has a huge role to play. Um, it's government that's been bailing out businesses. It's government that's been uh, needing to channel money towards workers and the unemployed um, and put in place a whole lot of systems uh, that are supporting people through the crisis. Um, and that goes to issues of taxation as well. We can't have, you know, uh, really low levels of corporate taxation. We can't have um, corporates avoiding taxation because we depend on that tax in times like this to support everybody, to take a collective approach. So without government having those taxes, you simply can't respond in situations like this and indeed in the bushfires that we saw uh, earlier this year and late last year. So it challenges that view about small government. It also challenges views around public versus private. One of the other things that the pandemic has highlighted is the importance of our health system, the importance of our education system. And for us in Queensland, we had, you know, fights in uh, recent years with the Newman government and the prior Labor government about uh, privatising public assets like our energy assets. Our energy assets are hugely important. At times like this, the electricity has to keep running. The water has to keep running. We have to make sure that our garbage keeps getting collected. Those important services need to remain in public hands. And again, um, I hope that this pandemic gets people to focus on the importance of our health system and our education system and the importance of decent funding for those systems, as well as public ownership of our essential services. And I think the other thing 
that uh, we've seen a challenge in the values that people hold is the individual over the worker. It's not been the CEOs, as others have said many times, that have seen us through this crisis. It's been working people, nurses, retail workers, teachers. Uh, again, with the bushfire crisis, it was the fireys that were protecting us and supporting us. We've seen the value of working people on the front lines who are actually the ones that are seeing us through this. And again, when it comes back to your question about wages coming out of the pandemic, it's those people, it's ordinary working people that should be paid more. And we shouldn't see this ridiculous situation where you've got CEOs being paid hundreds of times more than ordinary working people. And I hope that's another value that gets challenged through the pandemic. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Andrew. That was Michael Clifford there. Language warning on this next track from When Our Turn Comes. If you don't like swearing, tune out for the next couple of minutes. in the back of the net bring back the right to strike and get down bring back the right to strike and get down too much of the wealth is going to profits not enough is going in the workers back pockets there's way to turn this state of affairs round bring back the right to strike and get down what did you think was gonna happen you dead shit people were just living in impoverished bliss That is when our turn comes there with Break the Rules. They are certainly a band who believe in a militant unionism. Uh, before that, we did have Michael Clifford from the Queensland Council of Unions talking about uh, some of the moves that might be 
already happening or could be about to happen to clamp down on some of our workers' rights in response to the economic crisis of COVID-19 and its many effects. Um, that's what we're talking about on the Paradigm Shift. It is about the, the way that this crisis could be used to push our world in a direction that we don't want and how we can try to push it back. Uh, the last interview for today is with Dali Kafar about the way this could affect our privacy and our data security in our computer and mobile phone application, which is, of course, in a world of isolation at the moment, more than ever we're using our computers and mobile phones. So this is something that we should be aware of. So let's have a listen to Dali. Could you start by introducing yourself? I'm Dali Kafar. I'm a professor at Macquarie University and executive director of the uh, Optus Macquarie University Cybersecurity Hub. Uh, and today on the Paradigm Shift, we are talking about the shock doctrine, Naomi Klein's book, as it may relate to our current COVID crisis. Now, uh, one of the things that's been in the news a lot is the threat to our data security and our privacy through the COVID safe app. And that's something that you've been quite vocal about and critical of. Do you think this is an example of a kind of inroad into our privacy rights or security rights? Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether it's really a typical example or not, but it's certainly, um, you know, a concern of whether some of these tools and these technologies could be turned in, um, you know, some uh, uh, massive um, or more important surveillance tools, for example, that do breach our security and privacy. So, um in the way it is now, it's certainly not, um, you know, to that point. But uh, uh, it is, it is a concern, uh, and it is, a, it is a risk in a digital society like ours. We have seen over the years government pushing more and more into surveillance, and especially digital surveillance. Uh, we've seen revelations by Edward Snowden about government surveillance. Um, and Five Eyes, which Australia is a part of, do you think that there is a risk that uh, our governments will use this crisis as a way of further er eroding those rights and further surveilling us? Look, uh, there's probably no one who could really predict future, right? Um, the the it's it's I think in in in. Um in our digital economies, it's all about risks and it's all about really assessing the risks um, and also understanding um, the possible threats. Uh, again, if you're really trying to, um, um, you know, describe the situation uh, as of the current implementation or the current deployment of the mobile uh, apps for, um, for tracing, um, in, in this particular case for the COVID-19 tracing apps, um, I think the, um, the, the situation uh, or the current circumstances are not really, um, you know, enabling uh, such um, uh, scenarios of mass surveillance to happen, for instance, in particular because there is a legislation that is framed around those. But I think most of the uh, long-term concerns that have been raised, I'm not going to really mention the, the short-term uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, concern that this 
um, type of technology can be misused. I think the argument there or the concern there is that uh, we have seen over the past some of these technologies being used, in particular after, um, you know, potential uh, moments of crisis. So, um, you know, the I think the very, very uh, infamous example is, um, is the... Um, um, is the NSA, you know, involved in a number of uh, mass surveillance activities that has, I think, now been uh, proved to be very, very true and to be very actual activities that happened after the uh, terrorist attacks in the U.S. It was very, obviously, very, very big times of crisis in the U.S. and in the world in general that turns the use of anti-terrorist type of technology that was dedicated or that was designed for very specific objectives and very specific scenarios of use being derailed to be used for potentially spying even on citizens in U.S. or even, you know, uh, international citizens by the NSA. Um, that has been condemned in many different ways. Um, so that's really one big example, but there's many, many of those that happened over the years for many different technologies. And I think this is really the risk, and this is the one thing that we should be really looking in, uh, making sure legislation, the technology design itself, and as a society, we uh, sort of protect for it to not happen. That is a perfect example of... Uh, the shock doctrine or a disaster capitalism, what Naomi Klein's talked about, the way that the perceived terrorist crisis was used to massively expand the surveillance state. One of the other things that has been talked about, especially last year, Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism, the way that uh, a whole business model from these online mega corporations is built around collecting and using our data. Obviously, in isolation, everybody's spending a lot more time online, a lot more of our shopping, social activity, and everything is done there. Do you think that there'll be an expansion in this surveillance capitalism coming out of this? I think it's very, very obvious to anyone today uh, that our modern societies, again, rely very, very heavily on this notion of big data, right? So we have created a world where our economies, our lives, our governments, our politics, our industries are really uh, relying on so much data in many different ways. And obviously this data is becoming so valuable, so important that, you know, it becomes a very good consideration and a very good asset for whoever, whoever is really maintaining it and whoever is really holding, uh, you know, that particular data. So, you know, we were talking earlier about concerns of these type of technologies being, you know, derailed from their initial objectives or uh, sort of misused. Um, not necessarily by government, by the way, right? Um, because uh, I think we should we should really be uh, considering that aspect of technologies like this being deployed by big tech companies, for example, or by manufacturers. The world uh, in, in which our te technology is, is deployed in is a massive ecosystem, is really a tangled web, you know, with many, many different stakeholders involved in it. Um, so our apps now running those uh, little software um, um, you know, are essentially linked to a range of analytics servers and third party really connected to it um, that have access to many different information and many different data that we collect on a regular basis as, you know, end users or 
customers of these apps, right? And that has a huge value. So it's not necessarily, you know, the big brother watching you as the government really interested only in your data. It can only, it can also be, you know, a range or a number of other, um, you know, third parties really involved or interested in that data that has many different values. And we know that our data is being monetized. You know, as we speak, really, our data is being collected from tracking data, the way we use our devices, the way we, um, you know, interact with the physical world outside. Our locations data is being collected and monetized, sold to other companies to make value out of it, whether it's really for targeted ads or whether it's for creating, um, you know, different insights and different analytics models out of it that are being sold to insurance companies or financial institutions, etc., etc., etc. I think the, the value of this data is in, in, in trillions of, of dollars. So that's really huge money we're talking about, and obviously this is attracting a number of interests dies um, and yeah obviously the risk of you know technologies like this is that it gets uh, out of control to some point and it attracts um, you know a much bigger appetite than simply uh, the way of deploying them for um, you know um, having initial objective which which can be really a very very good objective and essentially here we're talking about public health for example that's obviously a very very important considerations but we really shouldn't be you know, overlooking the idea that this might be misused. So, uh, we are in somewhat of a crisis and things will change coming out of it. What do we need to do to make sure that the changes that happen are changes in everyone's best interest rather than changes that take away from our privacy or security? One important consideration that uh, I've been a, 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 um, a big advocate of, I think, was to um, understand that we are uh, all in this together is so true that we should be even considering this from the perspective of uh, people are arguing against whether you know some of these tracing apps are useful or not right and and people really saying that tracing apps or these particular technologies deployed um, um, should have uh, priority over some of these consideration on privacy and security. I think we should be really looking into this as a not necessarily mutually exclusive type of objectives. So the fact is that we can have both the technology as such and the advances in cryptographic operations and mathematical foundation of privacy are such that we can essentially have both privacy preservation of individuals using technologies and utility out of this technology being deployed. And that's really a very, very massive, um, you know, message that we really all have to understand. Um, and, and I think the, 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 the tracing app uh, is a perfect illustration of how we could really be trying to merge all different views so that we obtain a much better outcome. So tracing app really operate, and we see it for our Australian app, uh, only if it hits a certain number of users, right? So that, and now to get to that number, we really have to be in a position you know, to, to collectively act on this and to be all comfortable with this possibility of installing and using this app. So we need people who do not really 
care about specific, you know, bits of their lives revealed to government or, or elsewhere. And we need all the others who essentially do care about that because of many different considerations and because, you know, the information, in, uh, you know, that some co-location information is being shared with a trusted or non so, not so trusted third party, like, for example, a technology, um, you know, company, um, we need those people to also be uh, enrolled and to be, you know, comfortable with, with, with that bit of information not revealed and, you know, protected in a, in a good and careful way so that we reach that wider adoption of this technology. So, again, we are in this together, just like, uh, you know, we need to operate uh, as a whole society waiting for the next few months, how things will look like. And certainly, you know, our normal activities would not, would never be as, you know, as normal as they used to be a few months ago. Um, I think the word is, the word post-COVID-19 will change. Um, I don't know how, but it will change in one way or the other. Um, and so we really need to understand that um, no matter how that change would be, there are a number of considerations, including principles of freedoms and rights of all of us. Uh, that are very, very specific, very subjective to each of one of us uh, that we have to consider and we have to really not give away. Okay. Thanks, Dali. No worries, Andy. You have a good one, mate. Cheers. You too. Spending money neurotically Making choices robotically Turning into a slave School to make me employable Work to make me reliable Just when life gets enjoyable Laying to my grave Come the global calamity Markets crashing dramatically Final show of insanity Time to start anew People starving to death Even over here in the West And you won't have time for a breath But we'll all have something to do Benefit drinking beer for the fun of it, smoking weed for the zen of it, nearly dying on smack. Try to stand on my feet, but I find there's nothing to eat, and it's cold out here in the street, so I soon come grovelling back. Come the global calamity, markets crashing dramatically, final show of insanity, time to start anew. People starving to death, even over here in the West, and you won't have time for a breath, but we'll all have something to do. Like a dull mechanical drone And I might as well be alone Cause I've got no time for a chat Work till six and then leave With a lousy wage for the week And I don't know what I've achieved But it nearly pays for my flat Come the global calamity Markets crashing dramatically Final show of insanity Time to start anew People starving to death Even over here in the west And you won't have time for a breath But we'll all have something to do that is Paul Spencer there with Come the Global Calamity, a song for our time. Um, and like that song says, there's different ways to look at crisis. It certainly is an opportunity for things to change. And today we've talked about how some of those changes could be used by those in power to extend their power. 
um, and to, I guess, entrench the way the world is now and some of the negative things about the world now. But of course, there's the opportunity for us, ordinary people, working together to talk about, well, the world's changing. It's not going to go back to how it was before. What can we do to make it better and make it more like the kind of world that we want to live in? And that is a process that involves all of us and I hope that this show has partly inspired you to think about that, think about how you can get involved because when it comes down to it, um, we may have a bit of an economic disruption. We have a, a health pandemic that is of immediate concern but there's broader things our ongoing ecological crisis and the ongoing economic crisis which is a a system that exploits people that exploits our environment that enriches uh, a small percentage of the world's population at the expense of many more and i think that is a real crisis and that is something that we need to talk about trying to change and so let's all get together and let's do it um it is going to be up to us the people who benefit from our society as it is are unlikely to um, all of a sudden decide that they want to radically change things but the opportunity is ours that is about all we have time for on the paradigm shift for another week um, you can yeah listen to some of those old episodes, including last week's, which was also about the shock doctrine as it relates to the environment. Um, on the Fortable Z website, fortablez.org.au, if you go to the shows and paradigm shift or uh, pshift fortablez.wordpress.com, and yeah, this is formidable vegetable, a new one for them. This is about the real crisis. It's called climate movement. For a reason To acknowledge the seniors Everything has a season This season is warm But it's bringing a storm And a burning urge For our journey to transform But held in our hand At this grave intersection Is a map of the passage For a clearer direction To a permanent culture It's time we began it With some wise design To realign with the planet Share skills to rebuild Our combined reliance And with wild guidance Redesign our diet Befriend energy descent and the change in climate to grow forests of food and a finer environment. Permaculture at this tumultuous juncture is a superstructure that can plug the puncture. In a society of anxiety, confusion and greed, this really may be one solution we need to bring back our elementary essence of ethics and walk in earth care, people care, fair share epic. Now's the time to embed it while the temperature's tepid. Let us rise as a choir beside the people who get it to guarantee that our future generations lie.